0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Sarah Salmon, the author of The Shaming State, How the U.S. Treats Citizens in Need. How are you doing
0: today? I'm well, thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yes, I would like for you to start by saying a little
0: something about yourself and how you got started on this project? Sure. Yes. So I was studying in New York at the time. I was doing my graduate studies around uh, 2012, 2013, uh, when I started um, uh, researching this question. And uh, I was volunteering at an agency that assisted refugees uh, seeking to resettle in the United States. Uh, And I was just, you know, listening to their stories and the difficulties they encountered uh, coming into the United States. So their applications and, and, you know, how did they get here and that kind of thing. And, you know, at the time, uh, this is also personal for me, I'm also of Iraqi descent and I have been affected by the war in the same way. Uh, Although my family is not refugees, but certainly affected by the war and the collapse of the government regime there and, and all sorts of problems that have that affect uh, Iraqis all over the world. Uh, and so I was interested in their journeys. And at the same time, you know, we were dealing with uh, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, and I was interested to see how the kind of, how how is it that when people encounter a disaster beyond their control, uh, a disaster which cannot be fixed only by family connections or only by somebody's income. You know, what is the role of the government? How does the government uh, come in to help? And uh, it's just sort of, a, you know, it's just thinking about that, thinking about this idea of, like, what happens when you need your government uh, to step in? What does that look like? And so I kind of wanted, I was really interested in this idea of, like, uh, this question of citizenship, this question of belonging to a state, uh, w- what is the duty of the state? What is the duty of the government? Um, and so that's really what started me, uh, started the interest in this particular question around, well, what, what does the government do when you come asking for help? And I was interested in those two groups in particular, you know, because of my personal connections, you know, having lived in New York, but also being uh, of Iraqi descent as well. Now, what are some
1: of the similarities and differences between the Iraqi refugees and the Hurricane Sandy uh, individuals?
0: Yes, yeah, so there are there are very obvious differences, uh, but also similarities. So I deliberately wanted to look at this question of social rights uh, and wanted to understand. The responsibility of the government, uh, and you know, in the United States, there is an understanding that uh, you know, if you need the government, it's because you know you're poor or you need some poor relief programs, which is you know not really true, right? We all make use of government programs. Uh, there are a lot of government welfare programs designed for middle class people, and so on. And so, I wanted to look at the programs that we don't immediately think of, programs that aren't very stigmatized. And so, I wanted to look. At uh, you know, people who again come to need the state at a point of acute vulnerability, acute need, but who aren't necessarily uh, typically immediately always stigmatized, and so that's where the similarities of these two groups come in, right? Uh, with the case of Iraqi refugees in the United States, these were uh, families that came to the United States on the special visa programs uh, that were designed to help. Uh, Iraqis who'd assisted the Iraq- the American military during the war or, or ones who'd been uh, affected quite um acutely by that so people who'd you know had death threats or or things like that uh in Iraq because of the role in the uh in the war um, and the and these are people who the ones I interviewed anyway for the most part had been middle class families as well so they're not families that typically uh ca- have come to rely on like relief programs or anything like that. Uh, and their their need of the American government was was as a direct result of the war and, and assisting the uh, American forces, right? So it was a very acute moment of need. The second case studies was, uh, you know, middle class uh, New Yorkers who were affected by Hurricane Sandy. And again, this is a community that uh, doesn't Uh, It's not, you know, it's not a community that you would think of as experiencing stigma generally. So this is a community of uh, white New Yorkers. Uh, They're very much embedded in the city of New York in terms of, uh, you know, many of them are uh, connected to first responders after 9-11. They work in police or uh, the fire department. Uh, You know, they're homeowners. Uh, And again, coming to need the government at that moment uh, was a result of this, you know, a storm that we called Superstorm Sandy, right? It was a big, big storm that uh, swallowed 17% of the landmass of the city. You know, it was a really big storm. So the level of need here, again, was very much in excess of what uh, the families can do for each other there, and so in that sense, they're similar in that these are groups that typically don't come to need uh, uh, the the programs that we tend to think of as stigmatizing programs, right? Um, so they're people who have a kind of ideological worth uh, that we, in the United States, typically don't really. Um, extend to people who need poor relief so that we know that in the United States, there's a lot of stigma around people who receive public assistance. Well, these are people who don't typically receive public assistance. What kind of help are they going to get? Is it is it going to be great? Are they going to feel okay? Is there going to be a degradation of status? Is a state going to provide adequate help or not? Um, and of course, you know, in terms of differences, there are certainly key differences, you know, uh, with uh, the case of uh, resettled refugees, obviously, you know, uh, arriving into the United States they were you know very much grateful to having escaped the violence they had you know, different sets of expectations around uh, life in the United States with American citizens. Obviously, the citizenship status you know precedes uh, the experience of need. They're they're already uh, uh, citizens. Uh, but for me, what was what was really interesting was the similarities, right? That these were groups of people who um, do not you know do not ask for poor relief programs and do not are not typically stigmatized. And I just wanted to know well, what does social what do social rights and social welfare look like for these people? Uh, because I really wanted to interrogate the kind of um, almost a stereotypical belief we have about government welfare. We tend to think of government welfare just in terms of poor relief, and I wanted to interrogate that and look at welfare beyond that for everyday for everyday sort of um, well, not everyday, but for um, uh, people who you know who have their jobs who who do all the right things. Uh, what happens when they need help? Now,
1: in your book, you talk about the deserving poor and non-deserving poor. How did the case managers in Michigan, where the Iraqi residents live, uh, view populations there?
0: Yes. So the deserving poor and, and non-deserving poor is a is a binary that's been discussed by um uh, you know other sociologists as well. So I was I was referencing the work of Michael um Katz on that. And um basically in the American uh social imagination, deservingness seems to be very much connected to work. Um, And that exists, you know, socially, but it also exists in terms of the structures of programs of relief as well. Um, And so uh, any kind of assistance to the poor has conditions around work, right? And so the idea is that if people are working, um, you know they're supposed to be able to get some kind of help because they're working. The working poor, are deserving the non-working, they're seen it's seen as their fault. There is this kind of binary around um, work and non-work where it is reduced to sort of an individual choice rather than, you know, a problem that might be connected to, you know, structural unemployment or things like that. Uh, And further, if people are working, you know, they'll be fine, right? There's this belief we have that as long as you're working, you're fine, uh, which doesn't always pan out. So with the case managers, um, there were definitely this sort of very strong um, (sighs) – I don't know if I would call it a belief, but in the interviews, what came through was that there was this idea that you know resettled families they just have to get to work, right? Everybody has to work, um, and those who worked if they had a, if they struggled with something, well, that's okay, they were working. Those who were not able to secure uh, employment were seen as somehow having failed at something. So the case managers would. Explain to these, uh, you know, these families, uh, that them not working invites a lot of suspicion, and it makes it seem like they're gaming the system, and so they don't want to appear that way. So, so the case manager would say, you know, just just take anything, just work at anything, uh, because you don't want to come across as a person who's entitled, who just wants something for nothing. Um, and so there, so there was definitely a distinction around. Uh, distinction of moral worth around working. And so that was the pressure in a lot of these interactions with refugees was around you need to find uh, you need to find work and and you can just get anything and it's better than nothing. Uh, of course, that also is connected to, the structure of these assistance programs. So these were assistance programs uh, that parallel poor relief programs. So they might be called refugee Medicaid, refugee cash assistance, refugee food stamps. Um, So even though these programs are designed to help resettle refugees, the fact that they resemble poor relief already brings in that kind of stigma of, of using these programs. And so when the case managers were you know, acting out that kind of uh, dichotomy, they were also reflecting the structure of the programs, right? That these are programs uh, that are conditioned on employment. You had, to, you had to prove, you had to demonstrate that you were looking for work in order to receive these benefits. Now, you
1: talk about shaming in terms of the Iraqi refugees looked upon as being committing fraud, and New York victims were blamed because they didn't evacuate. What did you find concerning shaming?
0: Well, shame is a very, shame is a, I mean, all emotions are social, but there's something about shame where it's a very powerful emotion. So shame is ultimately this experience of not only at having, uh, you know, failed to achieve an ideal, but also as appearing to embody the oppositional values, right? So appearing in front of people to not be what you think you are as an honest person or a good person or what have you, so it's an experience of being made to feel like uh, one had committed a transgression or one had violated a kind of a, a social value, right? So it's a very it's a very painful experience because it's it resembles sort of being banished. Uh, from society, it's like it's 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 a real break with social norms. So when people feel that it's a very it's a very difficult emotion uh, um, to deal with, and it it does, it can often be transformed. So you know people might feel angry at being shamed. They might feel a lot of rage. Uh, they might feel it's sort of unfair and, and fight it or displace it or or uh, transform it. Um, but in each case, what had happened, it was a bit more complicated. So in the case of uh, resettled uh, refugees, the shaming come. Through with the again, the structures of the programs, right? So, these programs you know, they have very high administrative burdens. So, there are a lot of check in with uh, the DHHS, uh, the Department of of, um, Health and Human Services, um, uh, a lot of sort of applications, uh, eligibility uh, criteria that have to be constantly updated and renewed. And, you know, a constant demonstration that uh, the need here is legitimate. So the need for food stamps or cash assistance or Medicaid. Um, so all the eligibility requirements make make these programs quite taxing. But the other thing that was going on as well is that these programs tend to be irregular as well. Um, so people's access to food stamps can, it's not unusual for it to be irregular. it's not unusual for people to have to constantly get in touch with their DHHS uh, uh, caseworkers to talk to them about, uh, you know, to to sort of address whatever uh, uh, issue they were having with their food stamps or uh, cash assistance. And the constant uh, connecting with the caseworker brings about shame because it's, it forces people to relive uh, their need, right? So they're constantly asking. So it seems as if they're begging. And then the other thing is that case workers were also uh, often disrespectful. So there was this, you know, there were several cases in the book, but there's this, you know, one woman, Shadia, who I got to know over uh, my time in, in Michigan, who had misunderstood the Uh, school lunches and thought that they were free because their food stamps, her family's food stamps had been suspended. So she goes to see the caseworker and asks, to inquire about this bill that they had gotten for the school lunches and the caseworker looks at her with disgust and says, who told you this was free? Um, and, you know, as Shadier was relaying the story to me, she couldn't get over that look of disgust. Like, why was her caseworker who was supposed to be helping her, was looking at her as if she wasn't human? Uh, and that was not an unusual experience, right? So there is that kind of degradation of status that comes with uh, uh, asking for Uh, help in these kinds of programs. Uh, And so what ends up happening is that, um, you know, Iraqis were sort of confused by it. They didn't quite understand why so much hostility. Clearly, they were in need, and it was a very desperate situation. They just arrived into this country, uh, and so on. But they quickly learn the basis of it, which is that Essentially, you're not really supposed to ask for these kinds of programs because these programs, uh, those who ask for these programs are people who don't work, and really, you don't want to be this person, and you just want to, you know, pull yourself by the bootstraps, and and so on. So they quickly internalize that logic as well. Uh, in the case of Hurricane Sandy, it was a little bit more um, nuanced or more sort of implicit because the programs were not uh, designed. The programs were not advertised with the same kind of um, uh, attention to administrative burdens, right? So the programs were designed with the idea that they're going to be efficient and simple and so on. But what it turns out, actually, was that post-disaster relief programs also have means testing. They also have eligibility criteria. And they're designed with the idea of efficiency, which is ultimately about reducing uh, waste, which is something that it ends up being absorbed by the individuals trying to access these post-disaster relief programs. So anytime the government is trying to save money, uh, you know, by being efficient, the, the, the efficiency tax goes on to the individuals, not on the, for example, consultancy firms that were paid millions of dollars to design these post-relief programs. And so here what happens is that the penny-pinching is experienced as shaming because what essentially what New Yorkers were told was that, you know, we can't just this is public money. We have to be wise with public money. We have to, uh, you know, protect the taxpayer. Uh, and that's you. We have to protect you and your money. And so we need to be careful with with how we are um uh, allocating, uh, this spending. And so what ended up happening was these programs, again, that had a lot of eligibility criteria, uh, which also were not very well designed, uh, by the consultancy firms. And what happened here was that families would have to apply for the, for, Uh, you know, whatever bit of the program that they qualified for or that they were eligible for um, and find that the, you know, their applications were lost or they had to reapply again. And so again, here they had to relive that kind of, uh, they had to demonstrate their need over and over. And what made it worse for uh, the Hurricane Sandy victims was that they were not told to evacuate the day of the storm because of uh, dated evacuation maps. Uh, And so they didn't evacuate, which amplified their losses, which amplified the kind of vulnerability that experience of having lost everything because they couldn't prepare for the storm in the same way. Um, And they... you know, because they're American, right? That's the trouble uh, with American social norms. They were blaming themselves and they kept, you know, several had, had in interviews would say to me, you know, if, what if I had left, if I'd known, what if i had known, what if i had left uh, before the storm? Um, I could have prevented this. Uh, and they almost felt like they were, you know, maybe being punished for not leaving. Uh, and there was, there was talk about how people should have left, um, but if you were not told to evacuate uh, and in fact many called the city's phone lines to ask about whether they should evacuate and they were told that they didn't have to evacuate uh you know you you'd be doing the right thing because you weren't crowding the the uh available shelters you know you weren't taxing uh people around you you were doing the right thing by staying put um and so definitely not evacuating and then experiencing lagging aid was just was another experience was was ultimately an experience of degradation of status as well. There was this constant self-blame around how they invited the catastrophe by not leaving um, and then by coming to need the government. And that was a shaming experience.
1: Thank you. How does scarcity play a role in the lives of both of the groups?
0: So scarcity in this situation is part of... uh, it's, it's artificially imposed. It's part of this neoliberal turn away from, um, from social programs, right? It's, it's, it's the idea when government constantly cries poverty. Uh, so it's, it's not actually a thing that's, it's, it's not actually a real problem, right? We know that the government has money. It just doesn't want to spend it on people, right? Um, and so the way it plays out in each situation is a little bit different, but, uh, but it's interesting how it's, it's basically the same logic, which is, well, the government, you know, we don't have, we don't have money. We can't just give money to everybody and you need to work for your money. Um, and so in Michigan, this, the scarcity was sort of explained in terms of, um, well, Michigan had economic problems. You know, there was a 2008 recession, there was the Detroit bankruptcy in, in Wayne County, and these were problems that were, um, you know, affecting everybody, but that, it was made worse because of people who don't work who are then expecting handouts. So the language was around expectation of handouts that makes things um, you know, worse for everybody else. Um, in the case of New York, it was more around, well, we need to protect public money. This is taxpayers' money, and you have to be very careful with it. Uh, and actually, in the design of the relief programs that were specific to New York, there was explicit references to prior uh, storms and hurricanes, including Hurricane Katrina, uh, which sort of presented like a yardstick of, of what not to do, right? Uh, in terms of the high level of corruption and, and waste of, of public money there, uh, and of course the f- and of course the constant reference to Hurricane Katrina as being the most expensive hurricane, the hurricane that kind of cost us a lot of money and put FEMA and red and uh, in the red and so on. Um, so there's definitely a lot of a lot of discourse around not having enough and. When we're told that there's not enough, that creates a lot of anxiety for people, right? Because there's this feeling that people around you, you know, there isn't enough to go around and everybody else is trying to take more than what they uh, what they need. So it does create a lot of social uh, angst as well.
1: Now, you talk about Bethany in upper management and how she noticed that there was a lot of trauma in the refugees. What did she tell you?
0: Yes. So, in the case of uh, Iraqi uh, resettled refugees, one of the first things that I was told was was uh, the the high you know high percentage of of uh, um, mental health issues that result from the trauma of not only displacement but the trauma of the war. So, um, you know, Bethany was was very sympathetic. I mean, she acknowledged she acknowledged that the trauma can be very difficult for people to understand. Um, she described it as a problem that goes back to even prior waves of, of refugee resettlement from Iraq. So, you know, she'd been, she'd been at at the NGO for years. She was talking about even refugees arriving after the uh, Gulf War in the 1990s. Uh, and, you know, she was aware that there was things like torture and and violent deaths and, uh, and such traumatic experiences that would then have, you know, this sort of cascading effect of things like depression or post-traumatic disorder or anxieties. And she also knew, um, that it can be very difficult for Iraqis to talk about these problems because uh, of the way that the um, the language around mental health in in the Arab world tends to be uh, sort of more. There's more stigma around it, so there's reluctance to talk about it, and sometimes people don't even recognize what they're going through. Um, and so she was aware that there was like a barrier to uh, to successful uh, integration or resettlement unless these issues are treated. Uh, but she, you know, she, she acknowledged all those things, but recognized, you know, that the NGO does have mental health services, which they do. Um, and that, you know, that these things are available, uh, and, and should be utilized. So, yes, she was very, very sympathetic. She understood, she understood that, but, but always believed that people can overcome that.
1: Now, did you find that proficiency in English was a major barrier for the Iraqi residents, especially living in Michigan in that financial um, situation?
0: Uh, you know, it was interesting because it, learning English was presented as, a, as an important step to uh, integrate into American uh, society, but in a place like, in Wayne County and, and Macomb uh, County, with the presence of uh, a large Arab populations, uh, you know, Arabic was almost ubiquitous in these places. Um, So it is important to learn English if, you know, for families that have children who go to school uh, for things like helping them with the homework and things like that. But what I learned from case managers was that, you know, disputing a bill or, um, or paying for a bill or something like that could be done in Arabic as well because of the ubiquity of the language. Um, the English proficiency thing, in terms of jobs, to me didn't appear. You know, in terms of my interviews with with people and looking at the job listings, it didn't appear to be as much of a problem. And in fact, there were people who were proficient in English who really struggled with finding work. Um, and uh, and and so if you if people weren't as proficient or spoke minimal English, they there was sort of service sector jobs that could be done. Uh, but I don't think it was. It didn't seem to me as essential. Um, uh, not having English was not as much of a barrier. Um, You know, rudimentary English goes a long way. But to me, what was more interesting was that there were people who were proficient and spoke very, very good English and still really had a hard time with jobs because simply there was not really enough to go around, not enough employment opportunities to go around. Tell us about the case of Samara and her problems finding work. Yes, so Samir is so Samir is an interesting case because she was one of the one of two who I spoke with who didn't have a whole lot of formal education, uh, and Samir's a, Samir's command of English was not was was very basic. It was rudimentary. Um, Samir was in her late 30s when I interviewed her. She had had six she had six children, uh, and she'd struggled with poverty living in Iraq. She was a unique case in that in that sense because I focused I tried to focus as much as I could on family. That had all of the bits and pieces that we're told were important to start over in the U.S. You know, the the, the language, the higher education, uh, the you know the the job experience, things that were supposed to help. In terms of resettling in the United States, so Samira was not was, didn't have any of those things. She was an, she was unusual in that sense. Um, she lived with her children uh, in an apartment that had no furniture. It was a basement apartment with with nothing in it. Um, and she uh, would attend English classes. She applied for jobs in different places, cleaning jobs at local restaurants or cafes, uh, and wasn't really uh, successful. And her case managers uh, at the NGO uh, believed that she was sort of not really trying hard enough, right? That she wasn't trying hard enough to get a job. They advised her to just go door to door to ask for work so that she wouldn't appear complacent because she'd also had trouble with her uh, food stamps and cash assistance uh, being irregular. Uh, And so basically she she was advised to keep looking so that she wouldn't seem like she's just trying to dig get something for nothing. And there was this weird story about how she, that she may be just gaming the system and, you know, sort of relying on the, on the, um, on the benefits because she has so many dependent children. And for me, it was, it was, it didn't seem like she was winning anything, you know, it was an apartment that had no furniture. She was looking for work. And in fact, she'd been declined, uh, even c- cleaning jobs at cafes. Uh, you know, they had said that she was, one One owner had said that she was too old and would tire easy, but she was only in her late 30s. Um, and so, you know, this is an example of a person who was not picky about the jobs they wanted, uh, which was another thing that, you know, Iraqi recent old refugees were sort of not accused of, but suspected of being too picky, you know, and, but she wasn't picky uh, and still couldn't find anything. Yeah.
1: Now, part two of the book, you talk about social rights and shaming in the post disaster relief programs. Talk about uh Kate and michael
0: yes so in in the second half of the book is when I turned to uh hurricane sandy and uh, in new york and uh, hurricane uh, sandy surprised this particular neighborhood because the neighborhood was not in uh um, in a mandatory evacuation zone. So it took, it took people by surprise in that neighborhood. Uh, and there was, and I inter- interviewed several people, but Kate and Michael was, you know, were a couple who'd grown up in that neighborhood who uh, had a two story home. Uh, and you know, they didn't think they would need to evacuate because they were told they didn't have to, uh, you know, they did the right thing. They had the flood insurance, which is that, uh, the, the national flood plan, um, and when the hurricane, when the storm came, the storm surge, they barely escaped. So they were able to get out uh, uh, safely. Uh, but the water had risen four feet. The, the house had sunk by seven inches. Uh, the initial estimate said that their house was going to be totaled and they would get uh, um, 250,000 uh, f- to rebuild their home. Uh, but then a second evaluation came and, and uh global them basically, and said that they would only get just over a hundred thousand, uh, and that the house would be repaired. Right. Um, so their story was part of something else that was going on at the time that affected not just that neighborhood, but a bunch of other neighborhoods in New Jersey and New York, uh, where the insurance companies were deliberately, uh, underpaying and there was like a lawsuit and FEMA was involved and it was a whole thing. Um, but, This was a story here of a couple who thought they did all the right things by staying home, like they were told they did the responsible thing by having insurance only to be told only to be uh, offered a very low estimate Um, and having to go through that process of applying and negotiating and. Um, You know, attending the town hall meetings and and just trying to gather as as much information about how to move forward. Uh, And, you know, they, they felt betrayed. They felt betrayed by their government. And Kate would often sort of vacillate. So she would feel angry about the experience with the insurance and you know the government letting her down, but she would also blame herself for not leaving. Um, she would ask questions about you know well who you know uh, who's responsible for all of this. I sh- I should have left. I but I didn't know, and it was this a mix of emotions uh, as she was relaying her uh, story. But there was this feeling like that she um, somehow failed at preventing what had happened to them. And it was a very strong feeling. So even though she knew rationally, you know, that they were doing all of these right things, she was gripped by that feeling that um, it was somehow her fault for not preventing the disaster in the first place.
1: You talked briefly about the elderly people in the New York area before and after the hurricane. What did you find there with their story?
0: So uh, the neighborhood does have people who are older, so people who might be nearing retirement, but it also has some people who are elderly, who are more frail. Um, So those people, you know, they had to wait out the storm in their attics because they weren't expecting the storm and they weren't expecting that they had to evacuate. Uh, And, you know, waiting in their attics to be rescued the next day by the National Guard, you know, very, very traumatic experience. Then there were people who were, you know, nearing retirement, who had to scrap their retirement plans while waiting for insurance and other rebuilding programs. Uh, That that story, the story of, of, you know, scrapping retirement was was difficult because these were people who'd worked, you know, worked all their lives and had, you know, solid retirement plans, and then Sandy comes along and just takes everything away. And it took everything away um, precisely because the post-disaster rebuilding program was just not adequate in any way. It was a complicated program, it was obtuse. uh, And so people were waiting for years before they could see some kind of uh, movement in their homes uh, in terms of rebuilding and repair, yes. Were
1: the safety net programs available to the residents there?
0: Sure. So there are, you know, there are several programs that are uh, uh, that were immediately available. Um, so in terms of post disaster uh, relief, in terms of the uh, immediate aftermath, definitely there's federal uh, and state uh, coordinated efforts uh, with. Uh, voluntary organizations. So this is that kind of public-private sort of partnership that we see uh, in in social welfare in the United States. Uh, so, you know, things like in the immediate aftermath, things like uh, facilitating, providing food or temporary shelter, you know, that was available, um, but... Uh, and there was also long-term, so you have the, the program that I looked at was Build It Back, which was a program that was uh, funded through federal uh, block grants, uh, but at, it was designed by the city in, in partnership with uh, consultancy firms and was administered by that public-private partnership between the city and the firms. Um, so these were programs that were available uh, but it was just that with the long-term relief programs the long-term rebuilding it just wasn't the programs were not good right the, because the because the priority was was all off um so the build it back program for example millions it had it had 1.7 billion dollars uh but millions and millions of dollars went to consultancy firms uh, it took years for the money to actually move toward constructing uh and building houses and and the priority was all wrong you know it was it was It just was not a very good program because embedded in the Build It Back program was this idea that uh, in order to be efficient, we had to, um, you know, create all this sort of eligibility criteria. And the eligibility criteria translated into an administrative burden uh, that was shouldered by uh, individual citizens who had to wait in their damp homes, you know, for years uh, before, uh, before they could see some movement on their housing.
1: Tell us about the lack of social capital after, you know, the hurricane.
0: So I will say that in the neighborhood, there was a lot of social capital, right? So social capital is basically the kind of connections that, uh, you know, members in the community have with each other. You could see that in churches or PTAs, uh, uh, neighborhood organizations, um, and social capital can be very helpful in, in the uh, post-disaster relief, particularly the early period of post-disaster. You know, people can lean in on each other. Those who uh, had suffered more can lean on those who have suffered less. Uh, communities that have social capital also tend to have high trust. Um, so this, this neighborhood definitely had these features. It had very strong community organizations. Uh, the neighbors really did know each other. But... The the problem, I think, is that we tend to overstate or valorize social capital too much, and we tend to think of it as a thing that could potentially shield communities from needing the government. And I think what's what really stood out to me is that this neighborhood was like a best case scenario of having good social capital, right? Uh, that it had all these connections, but yet it couldn't move forward because you know, guess what? We really need the state. Like we need, we need the government. Um, and so in this neighborhood, there was definitely, there was definitely social capital. It just wasn't enough. Uh, it, it helped a lot in the early days, but you know, when it came down to, you know, returning electric power, electricity, the grid, uh, water, um, rebuilding, you know, we do, we definitely need the state.
1: Now you talk about what makes a person middle-class. How did these programs, um, Help when you you examine the New Deal, who did they help and who did they exclude?
0: Yes, that's a very good question, and and the reason why I was I brought in the New Deal when discussing uh, um, the the kind of the structural or the the, the big big social factors that produced the situation we we are in right now in terms of a state that tends to shame people when they ask for help um, is that I was. Really curious as to why people felt ashamed when asking for help. I didn't quite, I didn't quite understand why it was so powerful for us that somehow asking for for the government's help with these programs it wasn't made easy to begin with. But somehow people felt um, like they were weak or like they lacked moral worth. And um, what? Uh, It's sort of what I think it it relates to is that it it relates to social and cultural norms in the United States, which to me seem to really come into um, uh, sort of they they really become cemented during the New Deal period. So the New Deal is this big idea program, you know, that full of safety net uh, uh, programs like Social Security, but also full of like uh, a serious investment in. Um, expanding the opportunity structure, uh, regulating labor, creating good jobs uh, that really did benefit uh, a lot of Americans. But it was definitely there was definitely clear segregation in terms of who was able to access the New Deal and benefit from it. So the New Deal really did create a period of expansion for the white middle class, but it excluded others uh, from that opportunity of, of uh, and then that uh, uh, period of expansion, the other thing that the New Deal did was that it it uh, gave material shape to the American dream, right? This idea that you you work hard and you get places, but the New Deal had all these programs that relied that basically created jobs but it concealed the role of the government, right? Because it's ultimately, it's, it ultimately created this myth that if you work, you'll get places. But these jobs were already created by the government to begin with. It. So it was through government intervention that we see good jobs, well-paying jobs, secure jobs, um, you know, subsidies on, on mortgages and things like that that allowed for the expansion of the middle class. But it, it made it as if it was just a person's individual merit, uh, the person's hard work, the person's you know, smart choices of getting the mortgage and getting the house and so on that built the middle class. So it creates a kind of an illusion that, um, that, people, that people get to the middle class or get to be in the middle class by working hard, and it's not really about the government's intervention. And at the same time, those who come to need the government because they are poor are basically told that they, that they are a burden. And so it creates a distinction between the kind of – Help that the middle class got to become middle class, and the help that a poor person might get. So it bifurcates or creates a kind of a false distinction around need. So it seems that people who need the government, well, these must be the poor people who just can't pull themselves by the bootstraps. Meanwhile, we all need it and we all benefit from it. Uh, And so the New Deal was very selective in that way, but it was also it allowed for the uh, it cemented this myth of of individual grit.
1: Now, one important nugget in your book was the fact that real wages have not risen since the 70s. How does this make it hard for people after a natural disaster or for the new Americans who are resettling?
0: Well... It, it, it everything becomes harder, right? Everything. Um, and if you think about the the trouble with uh, real wages now rising since the 1970s, it would be taken in conjunction with other things that are going on as well, including that uh, since the 1970s, we start to see the state the government retreating from its duties. We start to see a kind of language of the government being the problem, not the solution. We need small government. We need the government to do less for us. And so you have a bunch of things happening, including uh, the decline in real wages, including the decline of, of good jobs due to things like automation or outsourcing, um, in addition to the the rising costs of social reproduction. So the rising costs of things like healthcare or education or housing. And so everything's happening all at once. Um, and it's just, it increases people's uh, vulnerability, but it also it increases people's vulnerability in the, uh, uh, um, in a state that just isn't willing to offer help. Um, so everything becomes worse uh, uh, because of that. But what was fascinating to me was that even though we have all these Things going on since the 1970s, the the undoing of the New Deal uh, since the 1970s, the belief that grit will get you places and the belief that you can get on without asking for help still persists. So these, these beliefs are still there culturally and socially, even though materially the foundation doesn't exist anymore.
1: Now, how did the Iraqi refugees deal with their associations with the Black residents in Michigan? You talk about that a little.
0: Yes, so that was one of the more challenging findings in the book. Um, basically, what was happening in that in in Michigan was that uh, ir- Iraqi resettled refugees were not receiving adequate assistance, uh, which meant that they had experience were experiencing a prolonged reliance on public assistance. Right, uh, the assistance offered to refugees when they first arrive. Uh, in Michigan is is for a very short period of time, uh, and after that they kind of have to basically get out there and and uh, and get a job. So many of them can't, and so they move into federal assistance like T.N. Uh, uh, temporary Assistance for Needy Families, if they have families, right? And that's that's a very stigmatized program, right? And in uh, in in Michigan they come to you know, inhabit the same spaces that poor Black and white Michiganders inhabit as they wait for this assistance, right? So the same offices, uh, the same, you know, crowded places waiting to meet with their caseworkers. Um, and what had been happening is that they, and this is this is a, a, a structural problem in the United States, right? Uh, and it has to do with the way immigrants, when they first arrive in the country, uh, they in order to assimilate successfully, they basically have to assimilate into whiteness. So this is something that's been documented in the uh, immigration literature as well. Um, so because of because of the, the anti-blackness and, and uh, uh, you know and, and structural racism in the United States and refi- and immigrants, including refugees, uh, quickly pick up that to be successful, uh, basically you have that you that to be successful you would adopt the uh, dominant cultural. Um, uh, dominant cultural values, right, which are white in the United States. And so when they encounter the spaces and they're with uh, um, black Michiganders, uh, that's when they start to feel like, well, I'm I'm going to be experiencing downward mobility if I do that. And so they start to express... That kind of racial hostility, the racism, uh, in conversations, and so they do things. So, like I was told in interviews, for example, that they almost set up like literal boundaries. So they move into neighborhoods that uh, have white people on them, even if, if it means paying more rent. Um, they constantly distinguish themselves in, you know, in terms of their assistance they're receiving. So they would say things like, "Well, you know, I'm receiving assistance because I really need it, not like these other people you know they go on they buy drugs with their with their assistants which you know these are stories that circulate that have no truth but they're very powerful stories. oh you know they go and buy drugs with it or they go and waste it on, on alcohol and we're not like that and so on. So you start to see symbolic and literal boundaries being uh, built up. And so that's how they uh, resist that kind of association um, and it can be expressed in real um, uh, racist language as well. yes that was a very difficult part of the of the research as well
1: yes you indicated some real discrimination um there and i i saw one quote and it was didn't move all the way to america to escape war to live near enslaved people you know yes was that a way of blaming the blacks for the state of warfare or what was going on there
0: Yes, so um, it definitely that's a big part of it. Um, But it's it was also the kind of it's to me when I heard that it reflected to me, the kind of structural racism that exists in the United States. And it was very painful to hear that because it, it, to me, it was painful to hear this, you know, this person come to the United States under very horrible circumstances. And pick up on and adopt the racism that's here as well um, And so I was really I I struggled with that, but I think you're you are right absolutely there are two things going on. One is that that quick internalization of racism in the United States, but the other one was also yes blaming black Americans who were receiving assistance. so it, was, it becomes like basically what they were saying what what re, what resettled refugees learned very quickly. Um, is that there isn't enough to go around and people abuse the system. And immediately people who abuse the system, quote unquote, takes on a very racialized character, right? And so it, it generates a lot of anger uh, towards that group. And it comes out in this way, right? This kind of very hostile racist language in wanting to move away and not, leave, not, not live in Black communities. But it definitely, as if it's as if they want, as if the, the families kind of wanted to Distance themselves from uh from the stigmatized group so that they they are not stigmatized as well. There was a way to escape the stigma as well.
1: Now, let's <clears throat> return to Jamaica Bay residents. Um, they were so protective because they said food and clothing you know that they would distribute would attract strangers.
0: yes. Yes. And I think this is the point, you know, earlier, you you asked a question about scarcity. This was the impact that I believe this is the impact that when people experience the resources as scarce, it does create a kind of a social anxiety around, well, are we going to have enough? And usually that translates into these othering attitudes, racist attitudes, uh, against others, right? And so what was happening in the uh, community in New York was people were afraid that as aid was coming in, including things like food and clothes, that people from outside of the neighborhood would come and, and uh, um, you know steal the, these things. And you know, they had to sort of, their fears had to be allayed a little bit, but yeah, there was this concern around that. And, um, you know, so there was like informal kind of neighborhood watches going on. There was rumors as well that, you know, people were breaking into houses. I don't know if that had actually happened or not, but there was these rumors that, you know, people from outside of the neighborhood were coming in uh, and and breaking into houses um, uh, that were unoccupied at the time because of the hurricane and that there were people coming in to take the food. And I think that's a direct impact of that experience of that like there isn't enough uh, that, that produces that kind of uh, hostility.
1: Now, how did the Sandy victims view blacks in regards to crime and other issues? You talk about this light surveillance of black Americans in the public housing. Tell us more about that.
0: Yes. So the neighborhood in, in in that sense in New York is not that different from other neighborhoods in New York. So na- New York has this strange, well, perhaps strange is not the right word, but it has this characteristic, you know, that you might have a neighborhood that's made up of, you know, uh, uh, private houses that are, you know, market priced. And then around the corner, you might have public housing. So that's not unusual in New York. Um, and that was the, na- the neighborhood had that as well, right? So you had... Communities that you know they own their homes and what have you, uh, and then very close there's there's uh, this public housing, and at the time, uh, there the the police was experimenting with this thing in this particular public housing of putting really high lights, sort of uh, very bright lights, shining onto the public housing uh, area to supposedly it was to make sure that drugs were not being consumed. Um, and I don't know if you've seen those lights. They're very bright. Um, and I, I don't know how people can go to sleep or how people can just, you know, even function with that light just pouring into their houses. And, you know, one woman in the neighborhood was saying, well, this is really important because we need to make sure that, you know, bad things aren't happening there, that people aren't using drugs or committing crime. And it was, for me, it really stood out because the neighborhood also grappled with drug addiction. So young people were grappling with drug addiction that was, you know, had, had produced several deaths, but it wasn't the same punitive explanation. You know. So the, the woman who said that was also carrying that anti-overdosing uh, medication with her in case somebody in the neighborhood overdoses. Um, and so it was very interesting to see that the same behavior was read very, very differently uh, in a very late racialized lens in this community.
1: What's the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish reading your book?
0: Uh, There are a couple of things I really, really want to uh, make sure that everybody takes seriously. Uh, The most important thing is that vulnerability is a shared human condition and that we must resist this feeling of shame when we need help. And we must resist the kind of political language that represents our human needs as signs of weaknesses. Uh, And I think it's also really important to not think of ourselves as islands, but really to recognize um, that we are, you know, we're not really self-contained individuals, that we are made through connections with each other. And that in a state, in a government Regime, You know, where you give up certain freedoms in order to have certain uh, services or, or what have you. We need to make sure that people understand that that's the state's duty, right? That there's a duty of care that the state is not meeting. Um, and the reason why I think this is important is that I, I, I'm not so sure that there's a way to do away with the shaming state. I'm concerned that this is a very persistent tendency, regardless of who has political power. But what I'm hoping for is that once we recognize our shared vulnerabilities and are able to have community connections that transcend those lines of like race and racism, um, community connections that are grounded in in the spirit of mutual aid, that that might help us structure our demands of the state and actually demand that the state meets a duty of care. Uh, That would be the most important thing that I think people should, um, should take from the book
1: now. I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience what's the next project you're going to be working on?
0: Sure. So I'm really interested in uh, what happens when people are neglected by uh, the government, what sort of what reactions happen, which was Part of the reason why I undertook this um, this project, this book, *The Shaming State*, um, I just finished an article on the New Zealand response to COVID nineteen. Since I'm uh, currently working at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, and I am a New Zealander as well, and the article explores the the kind of con- the reactions to the uh, government's COVID-19 strategy uh, and exploring the ways that government neglect can produce reactionary as well as pro-social organized social responses. Um, And I'm also at the moment involved in looking at or studying um, the way people come to engage with extremist uh, ideologies and the role of experiences of social alienation and government neglect these kinds of experiences and how they might make people more susceptible to engage with uh, extremist and populist um, ideologies. So it's, it's, it's in the same direction, but a little bit different. But that's what I'm doing at the moment.
1: Well, we will be looking forward to that project. Thank you again for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.